This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to another discussion on The Mosaic, where we explore current issues and trends through in-depth analysis, commentary, and discussion. From social justice to music and art, we're covering it all to highlight the unique experiences and opinions of our diverse community. Today, we take a closer look at Google and Meta's removal of Canadian news from their platforms. We'll hear from Ottawa MPP Joel Harden on the tech giant's reactions, and then see what's in store for this year's Capital Pride. We'll go through a cyclist movement supporting active transportation of the Queen Elizabeth driveway, and talk Oppenheimer with Ban the Bomb Ottawa, a campaign against nuclear weapons. I'm Lauren Rolston, and this is The Mosaic for August 17th on CHUO 89.1 FM. Meta started taking down news content from its platforms in Canada this month. Instagram and Facebook users are noticing the absence. This is part of Meta's response to Canada's Online News Act, Bill C-18. The bill was passed in June with the intention of ensuring fair revenue sharing between digital platforms and news outlets. So it asks tech giants like Google and Meta to compensate Canadian media for their news content. This comes as the news industry faces persistent financial struggles, something exacerbated by COVID-19. In the first six weeks of the pandemic alone, over 2,000 journalism jobs were lost. Before that, the Canadian Media Guild counted a gross loss of over 14,000 newsroom jobs between 2008 and 2016. Australia put forward a similar bill in 2021. Just like what we're seeing now, Facebook blocked news from its Australian platforms. Then around a week later, they struck a deal with the government and the restrictions stopped. Only here, a deal hasn't been reached. I spoke with Ottawa Centre MPP Joel Harden about their reactions to Bill C-18 and Canadians' news consumption. Here's the conversation we had over Zoom. So today we're talking about Meta and Google's moves to take down Canadian news from their sites. Um, so just diving right into it, I'd like to talk a bit about Bill C-18, the Online News Act, which is the bill that was passed by the government and came as media outlets have experienced years of downfall in their revenue, and newsrooms are closing the doors at increasing rates. And this bill that was passed, Meta and Google have kind of called it unworkable. So I want to know your personal take on this online news act. Uh, well, I think what we've seen is, you know, a stark example at how very powerful people, billionaires who run tech companies, control our access to news or attempt to. So I am not necessarily in this debate, Lauren, falling on the side of saying this regulation is going to save news in Canada. I think we had a huge problem with the concentration of news in corporate hands already and difficulty for alternative voices. And I don't need to convince CHUO how difficult it is to fundraise and get a program together every single year. But the news media and monopolization of the news media, big groups like Post Media, uh, has been a problem for a long time. But what this shows is is not just the giants and the influence of the news giants in Canada. This is these are the global tech goliaths essentially waging a strike of their own, like an employer strike, to try to compel a government not to do something. And you know, when I was getting ready for our conversation, I noticed what had happened in Australia. A very similar story where a country had decided to require uh, Google and Meta and other of these companies, and really we're talking about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and these other billionaires, to essentially cough up money uh, for accessing news made by Canadian content creators. And I'm not talking about post media, I'm talking about journalists like yourself, people who file stories, people who work for a living. 
in a context where newsrooms are closing everywhere uh, and people, you know, gaining college and university training are having a hard time finding full-time permanent positions. This is, I think, a reasonable thing for the federal government to ask these global tech goliaths to contribute modestly for their usage of being a platform for accessing news for Canadians on their services. But as we see in Australia, the, you know, the response from Google and Meta has been extremely heavy handed. And I think what should alarm us all is the degree to which they control people's access to news because more and more Canadians are getting their news through social media. There is an immediate effect of people all of a sudden not being able to access a story on Instagram or on Facebook. That is uh, you know, very obvious to Canadians now. If it's ever been theoretical, how much power do these tech goliaths have? They have a considerable amount of power. Um, so I'll just end with this, and I've talked for too long, I'm sorry, but I, I feel the need to say this. A lot of us have been thinking about how to consume our news more mindfully in this moment of not just Canadian corporate consolidation and news content, but these global tech goliaths. And we have been choosing uh, subscriber-based news, campus-based news like CHUO. Uh, I think of a platform like Canland, you know, that is an incredible content creator, but you pay for it. And it's been independently funded by subscribers. And in your case, you know, CHU is affiliated with the University of Ottawa and, you know, basically draws upon the University of Ottawa community. And that is that is another way out of thinking we can solve this at the regulatory level federally. We'll see where this bill goes. But for me, what it, the balance uh, sheet I have, the conclusion I draw at the end of this is, how imperative it is for us to make sure we get independent sources of news. And then more importantly, for a, a truly dying Canadian news industry, that we actually make sure that the tech goliaths have to pay for their use of content created by Canadian journalists. Mm-hmm. And, and as a graduate of Carleton School of Journalism, I hear you a thousand percent. It is not easy. Uh, but what Justin Trudeau and the government has said about Meta and Google's response to this is they said that it's bullying tactics. Is that what's what's going on with these global tech goliaths? Yes, yes. But where I think it's a little bit more complicated than what the prime minister is alleging is bullying has been going on in Canadian news long before this. If, if you look at the treatment of dissident voices in Canadian news on issues of great controversy, whether it's the rise of the movement for Black Lives in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the fact that before then, people raising critical questions about police reform were persecuted. Uh, people raising critical questions about human rights on any number of levels, be it for Indigenous peoples here in Canada or human rights preference. I'm on my way this afternoon to a human rights rally on Parliament Hill for Afghan women uh, who feel ignored and left behind by the Canadian government. After years of platitudes and pledges, the Canadian government has just turned their backs on, on Afghanistan in many respects, and they feel ignored. And when you raise these perspectives, you often get minimalized or dismissed by a lot of the mainstream pundits, the mainstream content creators, who of course are answerable to big local giants like Post Media and these other conglomerates. So that's where I quibble with the Prime Minister. A billionaire is going to do what a billionaire can do. <laughs> what I would say we need to do as well, and this is beyond uh, this particular bill, is all of us as Canadians need to think about where we get our news. And if it means sacrificing a few lattes a month or you know, a few extravagances a month so we can fund independent content creators. That is a huge, important step. 
because we need independent news to thrive in this environment while it's being attacked, not just by meta, but by post media and so many other of these concentrated content creators. Mm-hmm. Especially as subscriber-based news outlets have suffered so significantly. But right now, Canadian news publishers are asking the Competition Bureau to investigate if Meta has overstepped in this power dynamic that's going on. Yeah. But to ask, like, a pretty basic question, why is this such an ordeal? Um, it, it's Well, first of all, what I understand from the Competition Bureau is that they were investigating before the complaint was filed by Mike D'Souza and five other journalists, as I understand it. So... It isn't something that's invisible. I mean, you have the prime minister of our country calling it bullying. So they're going to be paying attention and they're going to be doing, we would hope, their jobs as guardians of the public interest. Uh, that's fine. But again, I I think we as news consumers, we have to not be distracted by the bouncing red ball here. And the bouncing red ball is the perception that our access to news, our access to understanding the truth, as it were, is a choice between whether Justin Trudeau's tax gets passed, a regulatory regime gets passed, or whether Meta gets a free hand and a free market. I think that is a false choice. I think I support the idea of billionaires paying a fair share for what they use in our country as a rule, no doubt about it. But beyond that, um, and this is what I'm heartened to hear, actually, Lauren, is that uh, groups like Candleland or the Sandy and, Sandy and Nora podcast or Jacobin Radio, I consume a lot. Of, there's a great local podcast here called Doctor versus Comedian run by a local physician and a popular comedian, Ali Hassan, who gets a lot of profile on different radio and news programs. These podcasts, which are made with great, as you know, great sweat and labor, are enormously popular. Increasingly, I'm finding a lot of people I talk to in Ottawa Centre are consuming a lot of the news through podcasts. They are plugging out of the Google links that were available before recently or the meta links that were available before recently. And if anything, they use social media to follow particular content creators they trust. It's not so much the platform. It's the journalists who are curating the content that they trust. I certainly felt that way during the convoy. During the convoy, I could literally count on one hand the amount of journalists who were going right into the eye of the hurricane, and they deserved huge credit for doing so. But, you know, there were a lot of people just kind of looking at news uh, wires and checking trends on web browsers and filing stories, you know, like that. To keep up with the pace of demand, a lot of people are forced into that position. But I, I tip my hat to the people who are, are struggling inside the news industry, but also the people who are innovating outside the mainstream news industry. I think they, they're getting love, I can tell you, they're getting love, but they need even more love. And that's that's the way we'll get past the Justin Trudeau versus Mark Zuckerberg drama. It's much bigger than that. Like we, we as Canadians have a proud tradition in our country, at least, of, of people like Marshall McLuhan in earlier eras, questioning how and where we consume our news. And we have to keep questioning that and, and rewarding the people doing the hard work of staffing and running campus radio, uh, running independent podcasts, because, you know, honestly, that is often how we're going to get 
some of our most creative and independent perspectives. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that shout out. Um, but as we see these these um, content links kind of disappearing from Facebook and Instagram, it's nice to know that there are other platforms for people to get their news, there like are. podcasts, like you say. Um, but yeah, there are. it's not the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. But the links are disappearing and people are shocked at like such an increasing rate at how much these links are just being blocked. And Google's eventually going to be mm-hmm. next. It's not exactly clear when the links are going to be removed from their search and news and discover. But looking at the responses from these tech giants, uh, what is the appropriate response to all of it? Well, I think at the, at the federal level, the, the government, the prime minister is right to insist that they need to compensate content creators for their sharing of content, which has been duly created through intellectual labor. I mean, I think that's absolutely fair. I'm sorry if I'm sounding like a broken record one, but it's not the end of the argument for me. I mean, that is... That may be how some people in the federal government want to frame the debate. It's, uh, you know, once we come to the rescue, everything will be fine. Things aren't great before that. I mean, the Ottawa Citizen has literally closed, physically closed its newsroom off the uh, 417. It doesn't exist anymore. People are working from home. People I know who recently retired from that newspaper tell me that the amount of pressure to file incredible amounts of work on short deadlines by yourself often with a cell phone going to major events it's it's unheard of and this is what's happening well beyond meta this is what's happening in the news industry as they are being pushed because if you listen to jesse brown and Kendall land their perspective is and i find it interesting because these mainstream news agencies became so reliant on advertising and indirect or direct government subsidies and we saw in the pandemic they got direct government subsidies they became easy pickings, easy prey for people like Meta, because Meta can claim they have all of these users. They can turn to the mainstream news agencies and say, you know, stop asking us to pay for your content. You're lucky we're giving you more traffic at all. You're dying, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's capitalism. That's the way capitalism sadly works, is that the, uh, the big fish consume the smaller fish. But I, again, I think the story is how a lot of those smaller fish are getting together independent of the mainstream media that exists in Canada and independent of the global tech goliaths and creating really interesting news, really, really interesting news. And and we as people, we can make a choice to consume our news there. And a lot of it is available online, a lot of it is available on podcasts, and a lot of it is available in events you can physically turn up to in our city. I'm wearing my House of Paint t-shirt. You know, art and content creation still happens at a local level, we are not completely beholden to Mark Zuckerberg to promote it. We can we can promote it and consume it ourselves. On that note, those are all the questions I had for you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's totally my pleasure. Be well. That was my conversation with Ottawa Centre MPP Joel Harden about Meta and Google's moves to block Canadian news from their platforms. Pride is starting on Saturday. The annual event will start with a clothing swap, then a pageant at the NAC. The following week, we'll see a picnic, panels, parades, and drag shows, all until the final dance on the 27th. Debate continues over closing the Queen Elizabeth driveway to vehicles in the summer. The NCC opens the QED between 5th Avenue and Somerset Street for active transportation, seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. 
Mayor Mark Sutcliffe is calling to reopen a section of the driveway to vehicles. Cyclists responded to the call with a critical mass ride on Saturday. The ride saw 300 bikers supporting safe bike infrastructure and the QED Active Parkway. City Councilor Jeff Leeper spoke at the end of the ride. He thanked the crowd as bike bells rang out and announced that cycling is going to be a part of the city's sustainability. I spoke with Horizon Ottawa board member Sam Hirsch about the critical mass ride and Mayor Sutcliffe's calls to reopen the QED. Here's what he had to say. A lot of different cities are doing it as a way to show like support for active transportation and cycling and things like that. But I think this one is particularly important because of the constant tax that Sutcliffe is putting on the Queen Elizabeth driveway. The active use project by the NCC, I mean, it's like not a very strategic, it's kind of an ideological decision that he's making to go after this project that frankly is like not that disruptive at all. But, you know, I think a large part of it is because he's you know, in tight with the people at OSEG who run Lansdowne, right? Like, and the, the private P3 that owns Lansdowne, I mean, he's prioritizing his relationship with those financial backers rather than residents and like creating a sustainable city. And I think that's like the overtones of it. I mean, he, it was obvious during the election that, that he was going to go down this path, but to the extent how hard he is continuing to push on it is, is sort of surprising to me. I didn't really expect it and doesn't seem to be like a very winning issue to me, but he's definitely playing to a certain base. Um, and it's like, you know, it's sort of like we're not in campaign mode anymore. Like, you don't need to do this. But I mean, it's also not his jurisdiction. It's the NCC. So, I mean, he's trying to go to war with them and it's it's not a very wise decision. Um, but, you know, we'll be there, right? Like to continue to push from a public standpoint anyways. That was Horizon Ottawa's board member Sam Hirsch on the city's critical mass ride last Saturday. Canada's largest movie chain, Cineplex, has reported that their revenue is up by 21% compared to last year. This is in large part due to the Super Mario Bros. movie and Barbenheimer. These summer blockbusters have boosted attendance levels and concession stand sales as they hit theaters among looming Hollywood strikes. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer focuses on the creation of the atomic bomb. The movie has grossed over $600 million worldwide, making it one of the biggest movies of the year. Along with Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Mission Impossible in theaters, Oppenheimer brought Cineplex its highest July box office and second highest month on record. 6.8 million moviegoers enjoyed the big screen nationwide in July, according to Cineplex. Conceptually, Oppenheimer could have been a hard sell. The 1940s period piece features black and white sequences of pretty serious subject matter and sits at a three-hour runtime. Despite this, reviews have been positive and IMDb gave it an 8.6 out of 10. With eyes on Oppenheimer as a current pillar of the movie industry, the film also invites dialogue on the subject matter that it covers. The anniversary of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs passed this month. Ban the Bomb Ottawa organized a peace memorial to commemorate those killed by the bombs on August 6th and 9th, 1945. CHUO's Aria Gunde joined me for a conversation with Ban the Bomb organizer Rory Lewis. Here's that conversation. So what are your thoughts about the Oppenheimer movie, if you've seen it? Well, I haven't seen it yet, and I haven't had the chance. I am a little conflicted about whether I want to see it. I probably will because I don't mind Christopher Nolan, but I guess I have to go into it with the kind of thought in my mind that this is a film about Robert Oppenheimer and not about the victims of the United States atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's about this person and their life, I guess, and not the act of the bombings. Yeah. 
I think you're going to enjoy an aspect of it that's not just, you know, illustrating him as like a grand figure. They're kind of showing a more objective reality about him. Like you said, Christopher Nolan is a great director and he's definitely added his spin to it. I feel like if you wanted it to be something that showed what happened to the people in Japan, it would either be gratuitous to the point where it would be wrong to show it in that way. That or they would do it poorly, I think. So, yeah, you know, it's a little bit conflicting, but I, I do hope that people go see it at <laughs> least just because people don't think about nuclear weapons in their day to day life. It's kind of something that's like out there, yeah. like away from us, but the danger is there. And I hope that it makes people think about nuclear weapons and maybe um, spurs them to find out about what's going on in the world with the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, or maybe it'll spur them to go and look at which countries are upgrading their nuclear weapons or stockpiling them. I'm glad you brought that up. Do you think that the public's attitude towards nuclear weapons is, are we alert enough or do you think enough people dismiss it because they can't comprehend the reality? Well, who wants to... Who wants to think about that? Yeah. Right? Like, you know, like, how could it be top of mind for people who have more material mm -hmm. issues to think about in their lives, you know, like the cost of living or food prices. But I, what I would hope is that for people to think about what our politicians, you know, the people that we elect to office, how, what, what are their actions and attitudes towards nuclear weapons, I guess, is what I hope that, yeah. you know, Canadians assess. So why did you join Ban the Bomb Ottawa? Uh, well, Ban the Bomb has a kind of a specific purpose. Ban the Bomb, it kind of brings together some people from a few different groups. But the purpose is, well, originally last year was to have Ottawa join the ICANN Cities Appeal. So this group came about to have Ottawa join the Cities Appeal, which is a global appeal of municipalities uh, where they urge their governments to sign the TPNW. So last year, uh, we came together to get Ottawa to do that. And so, kind of surprisingly, last June, our city council did vote to join this uh, global appeal. But we're still around because there's still a lot more work to do. Can you explain more about how cities can pressure national governments to uh, denuclearize? Well, the reason why I say there's work to do is because I don't think it's enough for a city to just sign this thing yeah. or put a motion through. Um, there needs to be you know, action behind it. And in Ottawa, for example, one of the kind of big contradictions and things that we've been talking about lately is the fact that Ottawa every year hosts North America's largest weapons trade show, CANSEC. And CANSEC features all the most prominent vendors who are involved in the nuclear weapons industry. And, you know, that's a pretty huge contradiction for us. And, you know, that's to do with nuclear weapons, but having a, an arms fair in general like that is, is gross. You know, it props up this industry, regardless of whether nuclear weapons are involved. But we're being hypocritical by having this event and also saying, hey, we're a nuclear-free city. You know, it's... Yeah. So... Now that nuclear weapons exist and militaries have them um, and they're ready to use them, do you think it's ever going to be possible to get governments on board to denuclearize? 
I, yeah, I, I have to think so because, um, mm. you know, people who shrug off, you know, peace activists or anti-war activists, you know, they might say that you're naive, mm. but I kind of like to think of it as we're not cynical and we're realist about what needs to happen. And so the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides like a framework for countries to disarm with the agreement with other countries. Right now, like the majority of the nations at the United Nations have agreed to it. It's been in effect for two years. There's 92 signatories and 68 state parties to it, which just means that you know they haven't signed it, but they agreed to it. When we're doing this kind of like activism and we're saying we want Canada to sign this, we want yeah. this country to denuclearize or that country to denuclearize, you know, we really need to come at it with an analysis of history and precedent. So when we say something like Canada, we want you to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, we have to ask questions like, why haven't we? Why won't we? And, you know, you're going to get to an answer like, well, Canada hasn't signed it mainly because part of nato and the nato countries yeah. don't sign it you know and these types of things start at home but when you start asking about other countries like say um north korea you would say like well we want north korea to denuclearize you have to ask why does north korea have nuclear weapons and then you're probably going to find out well they won't or can't denuclearize unless they don't feel there's a military threat to them by the united states yeah. and their allies who have bases all around the country. Or if you want Russia or the United States to denuclearize, you're probably going to say, well, well one's not going to do it unless the other one does. So we have to yeah. kind of like dive into it, you know, on a granular level. But I, I think it can be done because, you know, throughout the decades, there's been progress on these types of mm -hmm. treaties before. And now we have this newer one, which again, like I said, is signed and agreed to by the majority of the nations at the United Nations. And I think Part of why I come to this is because, and maybe you can relate to this growing up, you're kind of told about Canada being this like peaceful country, but then when you when you do the reading, you find out, well, no, that's not really quite true. And we talk a big game on the international stage, but we don't really put our money where our mouth is. And I think Canada could at least be a good example by signing it. I don't, I think the stakes for Canada are fairly low for them to sign it. You brought up a good point about Canada's history. We have a very good perception of ourselves, but we haven't been helpful. We haven't lived up to it in the past. Can you tell me about the vigil you held last week? Yeah, so on Wednesday last week, August 9th, which is the anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Nagasaki, we had a memorial by the Rideau Canal in the Glebe. This happens usually every year. There's a Japanese lantern floating ceremony that happens. There's a little pond there and you light a candle and a lantern with a message and it floats down the pond and it's very pretty. And, you know, we it's a memorial. It's not explicitly you know, like a rah-rah political thing, though it's really hard to kind of avoid politics in it. It's inherently a political thing. But, you know, we usually have a commemoration and then we'll have speeches. So this year, Peggy Mason from the Rideau Institute talked about kind of the history of the nuclear treaties and Canada's involvement in these treaties. And she kind of gave a lay of the land on 
what the current state of nuclear weapons are, you know, who's upgrading, who's stockpiling, and what the strength of nuclear weapons is right now, because one of the main things that people don't realize, and what I hope they take from the Oppenheimer film, is that the weapons that are out there now are many thousands times more yeah. powerful than the ones that were dropped on Japan. They can so, cause the extinction of humanity. Yeah, like it's only going to take, you know, a couple of them, two or three being exchanged by two countries to really mess up the environment in a catastrophic way for humanity. So Peggy, that was her side of it. And I also spoke about Ottawa's role as an ICANN Cities Appeal endorser as well. Mm -hmm. Spoke about CANSEC and why we need to stop this trade show from happening. I don't view the people who are in charge of these things as rational people who wouldn't drop a nuclear weapon. You know, for example, the only precedent we have is the United States doing this. They're the only country to have dropped those nuclear bombs on people. And the United States further has used depleted uranium weapons in the very recent past, as well as the UK. And, you know, not everyone considers depleted uranium weapons to be nuclear weapons. I have to say that, but they're radioactive. So, you know, we have to consider that it has happened and weapons in that ballpark are still used. And on the other end, you have this war in Ukraine right now. And Russia has, there's been a lot of talk about them deploying tactical nuclear weapons into Belarus. And then kind of the response to that is the United States and the United Kingdom giving depleted uranium munitions to the Ukrainian forces. So there's a lot of escalation happening. Mm -hmm. And it's a danger to not just that part of the world, but to everyone. Like depleted uranium munitions, where they're used for years after these conflicts, people that live there face birth defects, cancer, leukemia. It's really nasty stuff. Talking about tactical nukes in Belarus, there is a huge danger in this kind of like escalation climate of like a misinterpretation of something yeah. and nuclear weapon gets fired. You know, there's a lot of danger of that. You know, things keep heightening, that danger is increased. So I don't trust these states to not use them. I'm kind of curious too, Rory, what was the turnout like for the vigil? It was really good. I didn't get a number, but I would say there's at least 50 people. When we organize these things, we reach out to the Japanese Community Association and the embassy. And the Japanese Community Association really pulled together a lot of people. And so there was kind of like two groups. It was kind of like the people from the Japanese Community Association and then people who were kind of involved in the anti-war movement. So it was really good. I was really um, heartened to see that many people come out. And also, you know, just given the location, it's on the canal, like the bike path, people, you know, stop as they're going by. Well, it's kind of, it's fortunate and it's unfortunate. Usually it's really windy at that part especially like around Lansdowne. So when we put down the lanterns, they kind of, a lot of times they fly down the pond and it happened, it's over really fast. And, but this time there was like no wind. So they just kind of sat there for a very long time and very slowly made their way down. That's perfect. Probably also a really emotional event too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially when you have these kinds of memorials, there's kind of a balance to be found in like how graphic you want to be about the suffering that the people who were in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the suffering they went through. So it can get it, it can get heavy. 
Mm-hmm. And then I was wondering, what would you say to people who argue, you know, oh, they needed to drop the bomb to end the war, or oh, we need nuclear weapons? What would you say to that? Well, the idea that they needed to drop the weapons is a very convenient idea for the United States to kind of escape any blame, and you know they haven't faced any consequences for doing it.、Um, but the idea comes from the fact that they were preventing an invasion of Japan by the United States, where a lot of American soldiers and a lot of Japanese soldiers and a lot of civilians would have died. So they needed to drop the bomb. And also, the other piece of that that's not really talked about very much is that prior to the dropping, they were firebombing、uh, Japanese cities, which caused a huge loss of life. So the idea is that well, we did this and it ended the war, but that ignores a bunch of facts. One, which is that Imperial Japan was militarily defeated long before this happened. They, like they were done,、um, and it was recognized. It was only a matter of time. Or they surrendered, and they were ready to surrender at that time in August 1945. What they were most fearful of was an invasion by the USSR, which was going to happen,、um, and likely the emperor would have been deposed. So, really, the dropping of the weapons wasn't a necessity at all. And I think really what it is, it was more of the United States、um, beginning the Cold War and sending a message to the Soviet Union about this weapon that they have. Is that like kind of part of your hesitance about embracing Oppenheimer? Is that maybe it doesn't approach it in that light? Yeah, I suppose so. Like this is a subject I care a lot about, so it's just like I don't want to watch something. I, like I'm probably going to, but I don't want to go into something where it's like whitewashing what happened, you know? Because that's what happens in film and television. A version of events gets told that fits the narrative of the country where, where it's being told. There's you know countless examples of this. Anything else that you wanted to add, Rory, for people that might be going to Oppenheimer or anything? Well, I would just. Tell them to look up what Canada's,、uh, what their status is with the、uh, treaty, and maybe check out the、uh, ICAN website, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Like it breaks down the countries that haven't joined yet and tells them what their position. So you know, it tells like what Canada has said and done at the UN with regard to the treaty, how they characterize it. It says what our foreign minister Melanie Jolie, the comments she's made about it, about what Christian Freeland has said about it, and also tells about former prime ministers and defense ministers who are in favor of it. So yeah, I would encourage them to check that out, and as well to if you're in Ottawa to look up CANSAC and familiarize yourself with it and the actions to oppose it that kind of happen every year. There's always very large protests. At the EY Center, where it takes place. Great. Okay. Well, we'll definitely be looking into it too. So, thanks so much for taking the time tonight. Yeah. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. That was Ban the Bomb organizer Rory Lewis on Oppenheimer and nuclear weapons. The Anishinaabe Moose Committee is presenting a Solidarity and Sounds benefit concert tomorrow. The evening is to celebrate and fundraise the committee in their research and community work. They've led the grassroots effort to protect the moose, their culture and lands. They're demanding a halt to forestry operations in Lavandry Park and to continue the pause of sport hunting moose. The event features artists like local contemporary Indigenous singer-songwriter Alicia Kaley and many more. 
Tickets are on a sliding scale of $15 to $50. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. tomorrow at Saw Gallery. And that's it for our discussion on The Mosaic. Thanks for tuning in. You can find this episode and previous ones on chuo.fm. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we'll see you next week on CHUO 89.1 FM, your community radio station.